now I'm thinking this is the worst possible case scenario. And it really ended up being a terrible situation because everything that I had put into the portfolio that I thought was a terrific long-term investment turned out to be absolute garbage. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by Women Building Wealth Membership Group, the complete proven step-by-step -step course to guide women from novice to confident investor. To learn more, go to womenbuildingwealth.net. Now, my name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Michael Oyster. Michael, are you ready to rock? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. Well, Michael, let me tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Michael is the founder of and CIO of Oyster Capital, a multifaceted investment advisory organization dedicated to providing customized solutions for planners, advisors, investment managers, and asset owners to assist in the achievement of all types of investment goals. Previously, Michael served as senior quantitative analyst with options advisory firms, firm Schaefer's Investment Research, conducting research on options, markets, and behavioral metrics, as well as managing proprietary option-based strategies, investment strategies. He joined investment advisory firm Fund Evaluation Group in 1999 and began researching traditional and hedge funds managers, as well as conducting topical research on markets and the economy. At Fund Evaluation Group, he was the chief investment strategist. He served also as thought leader and frequent presenter on markets and the economy. Michael's the author of countless papers as well as two books, Mission Possible, Achieving Outperformance in a Low-Return World. And his second book is Success in a Low-Return World, which is exactly what we are living in. <laughs> Michael is a graduate of the University of Cincinnati from the beautiful state of Ohio, where I spent most of my youth. <laughs> he graduated with a BBA in finance, like myself. He is a CFA charter holder, like myself. And unlike myself, he is a CAIA charter holder. Michael, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Thank you, Andrew. I, I appreciate that very much. Yeah, so, yeah, I do. I live in Cincinnati and not born and bred here, but certainly uh, love Cincinnati very much. I'm a retired pole vaulter from uh, the University of Cincinnati as well. I like to tell people that I, I was a very underwhelming college athlete from a very small town in North Central Ohio. So happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. And how did you get into pole vaulting? I just happened to know a woman in Thailand who came in second in pole vaulting like regionally or something. And she's really gunning to, to try to become a number one pole vaulter. Pole vaulter. But oh. tell me, how did you get into that? Well, I, I, I sort of fell into it because I was a sprinter in high school and very overmatched once I got to college. And I'd always wanted to try pole vaulting and uh, never had the opportunity to because I was the fastest guy on the team. So I always had to run the, the sprint races and never really had an opportunity to try it. So after sort of washing out as a sprinter, I took it up. And I think you have to be a little bit insane <laughs> to be successful as a pole vaulter. I don't know that I had that level of insanity. I, I had some some speed, which was helpful, but really, I think you've, you've got to be fearless. And, and by that point in my life, I, I certainly was not. So <laughs> it was fun and I had some success, but I, I 
I uh, was not as successful as I could have been had I been a little bit crazy. What, what is the, I mean, I've always looked at pole vaulting and never really understood it, but what would you say is kind of the most important thing to be a successful pole vaulter? Is it the, the approach? Is it the, you know, the strength that you use to propel yourself or, you know, it's what, speed. The most important thing is speed. So Sergey Bubka, who for many years, and I think maybe still has the world record in the, the men's pole vault, was fast enough to be on the Soviets four by one relay team. He was that fast. So it really is that. And then I think you've just got to be okay with the idea of running full blast and then having yourself launched up into the air upside down and turn sideways and then fall on your back and trust that you're not going to die. <laughs> uh, That's really pretty much it. I've been reading the history of the modern world, Genghis Khan in the making of the modern world. What an amazing book, but it reminds me of the, um, the siege devices that they're using to, you know, throw things up in the air over buildings yeah. and things like that. So there's the yeah. early example of pole vaulting. Well, right. yeah. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a little bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Yeah. Well, I've got a bonus for you, Andrew. I've got two today. Actually, one is a little bit short and, and, and kind of comical. And the second one is, is more fruitful for your listeners, I think. But we the, love bonuses. The first, okay, bonus it is. So imagine recently out of college kid, thinks he knows everything about everything. My job at the time, I was about 23 years old, was to recommend individual securities, one security at a time, one stock at a time to my firm's clients. And I could recommend a long or a short. And if I thought it was going to go down, I would, this is my best idea. I'm going to recommend a, a long or a short. And I don't, honestly don't remember the company or what stock it was, but I recommended that our firm's clients go short a particular stock. Well, it just turned out that that stock went ex-dividend only a few days after I had put on that short recommendation. And I had the clients calling me every name in the book, like, well, how could you do that? Because as obviously if you're short the stock and it goes ex-dividend, you have to pay the dividend. And that, that was really stinging to a lot of these clients that then I'm sure, I don't recall, but I'm sure didn't make up that loss in the process. But it was a lesson that I learned very, very quickly. And I'll never forget that, you know, just make sure you know where the ex-dividend is if you're going to go short a stock. So that's one. But the second one, more recently was in the middle of 2014. So at the time, I'm the head of the portfolio management team for the investment advisory firm that I was a partner in, Fund Evaluation Group in Cincinnati. And FEG is a, is a very good group of very talented people who advise institutional investors, nonprofit institutions, mostly endowments and foundations. And my job at the time was to build portfolios for the clients that gave us discretion. So within a certain range of asset allocation targets, we could build portfolios out of whatever it is that we thought was going to make the, you know, the best return on investment with uh, least amount of risk. And I was the primary investment person. I was not, I was part of a team, but ultimately the decision came down to what I thought was the best for the investment portfolio. So as a little bit of background, the firm and, and the philosophy at the time, and, and which I still adhere to was a number of different things. One is we believe that we should take a very long-term approach with investing, which is consistent with the endowments, sort of intergenerational equity kind of philosophy around forever. And we can take a long-term approach. The second thing that we believe, we believe that the time was valuation 
criteria should drive investment decisions. So you build portfolios out of things that are cheap and you avoid stuff that's expensive. And then the third primary thing that we believed was that diversification is a really good thing to have in portfolio construction. It's a good risk mitigator and it opens up opportunities to other areas of the investment world that you might not, might not otherwise consider. But if you have a dedicated you know, consideration of diversification, it can be good for a number of different reasons. So philosophically, that's where we were starting and we were building portfolios in 2014 around those philosophical tenets. So at the time, I was diversified into lots of different things. I had domestic equities, international equities, emerging markets, lots of different flavors of fixed income, commodities, master limited partnerships, real estate investment trusts, lots of different things. So I'm thinking, okay, this is good. We're, we're diversified. We had a very large allocation to emerging markets because they were cheap at the time. So mid-2014, emerging market stops, stocks relative to U.S. stocks in particular were just about as cheap as they ever were. So we had, I think at the time in many portfolios, a triple weight relative to targets in emerging markets, thinking, wow, we're going to get paid for this because eventually they're going to turn and everything's going to be wonderful. But then something happened on the way to the bank. In 2014, as you may remember, that was the beginning of when the United States started flooding the international oil markets with more and more capacity. So it was the very beginnings and of the biggest influence on what fracking had done to unleash the massive amount of supply coming out of the United States. So the price of oil collapsed. Okay, so the price of oil is inversely correlated to the dollar. So the dollar went up in value very strongly. So now I've got two things that are working against me. I've got commodities in my portfolio because I think I'm diversified they're getting absolutely demolished because the price of oil is collapsing and all by this you know at the same time the dollar is strengthening so emerging markets and other international investments you know if, if obviously if you are a US dollar domiciled entity and you own things outside of that currency space in other currencies and that the currency weakens then that doesn't help your investment so Emerging market currencies were collapsing at the time because they were working inversely relative to the dollar. And at the same time, China was slowing their economic growth that had been stratospheric, you know, in upward, mm -hmm. upwards of double digits for many years, was slowing a lot more quickly than people were expecting. So you had emerging markets, currencies collapsing because they were inversely correlated to the dollar. But then at the same time, because China's weakness was putting even further downward pressure on their own currency, plus all of the emerging market countries that sold things to China. They weren't growing as much. So now I'm thinking this is the, the worst possible case scenario. And it really ended up being a, a terrible situation because everything that I had put into the portfolio that I thought was a terrific long-term investment turned out to be absolute garbage for many years. And we lost clients over it. Performance was bad. Performance is suffering. And, you know, it was, it was one of those things that takes a long time to recover from. And, you know, it was a, a very hard lesson learned on a number of different fronts, but not the least of which is to say, you know, I can, I can look at it and say, all right, we were building portfolios based upon what we had established as a long-term, fundamentally strong investment philosophy, but it was wrong. I mean, it was, it was flat out wrong. So, you know, it was, it was one of those things that, you know, the, the, being short a stock right before it goes ex-dividend is kind of comical, but when clients are leaving as a result of performance, as a result of, you know, some bad decisions on, on my part, boy, it really, really hits, hits home pretty hard. 
So what, what lessons did you learn? I mean, my mind's going, I got a lot of questions for you, but I'm just curious if you could outline, you know, what it is that you learned from that. Well, as I was thinking about this, and this is a really terrific idea for a podcast, and I was thinking about the, the concept and, you know, on one end you could say, well, you were just building portfolios based upon the philosophy and it was just a, a period of being out of favor. I don't think it was as simple as that. I think I had risks in the portfolio that I didn't understand. Number one, the currency risk was one where philosophically we had always said, you know, currencies go up, they go down. You can't predict it over time. It's going to wash itself out anyway. It's just going to be a break even. You really shouldn't even concern yourself with it. But the reality is, and as I learned in a very real sense in late 2014, is that they can have a dramatic impact, especially if you have an excessive allocation or an overweight situation to something that has a high degree of concentration of risk. So I had a high degree of concentration of risk in currency, which I didn't really fully appreciate at the time. And more importantly, and this is something that I think your listeners probably recognize, is that I think we all, and, and you started out you know, talking about, hello, risk takers, you know, people understand that risk is part of investing. That's just the reality. And the more return you want, the more risk you have to take. But it's not always a linear trade-off. In many respects, you can take risk in excess of what is justifiable based on a, an expected return. So the challenge is, as we look at asset allocation at the portfolio level, is to recognize, okay, I've got this risk and I'm willing to take it because I'm getting a commensurate amount of expected return as a result. Currency is not a risk for which you get a commensurate amount of expected return. It simply isn't. I don't believe that it should be something. I think there's some really terrific products that hedge currency. There are other products that are actively managing currency, and I think all of those are very good. But currency is a very real risk that does not exhibit an ex a commensurate amount of expected return. And th th that's really the biggest lesson. You know, don't don't expect that over the long term, currency will wash itself out because you might not have the long term. I mean, if you, if you look at what the dollar did in 2014, it went up by such a substantial amount that the impact on relative performance that a portfolio had, that our portfolios had, uh, was just very difficult to come back from, even if you make all the other right investment decisions. And the other thing I would say is that in terms of recognizing Look, I mean, philosophically, we said we wanted to have a highly diversified portfolio. So we had lots of different kinds of things, and that was good. But the reality is, is we had a lot of similarity in the sense that we held things that were attractively valued. And you would think, okay, well, we should have a lot of things that are attractively valued, and maybe that's good philosophically. But having a high degree of concentration in anything, even something as fundamentally sound as valuation criteria can be dangerous. And I know a lot of investors over the last few years, even upwards of 10 years, that have had a concentration of, of value-oriented things have suffered relative to those who maybe didn't have as much of a concentration. So it's, it's prudent to consider diversification even away from the things that are fundamentally sound, because those things may not work all the time. And when they're out of favor, you really need something that can can help boost your returns, which is why after this experience, I, I sat down and I started to understand momentum a little bit more. And I did some research on applying momentum at the portfolio level where instead of looking at asset categories and saying, okay, are they expensive or cheap? And leaving it at that, I said, okay, are they expensive or cheap? And then, oh, by the way, what's their momentum look like? And then let's try to fine tune our asset allocation based upon not just 
whether they're expensive or cheap, but how they're performing and going with the positive momentum and avoiding the negative momentum. I think that would have helped my portfolio construction at the time. Oh man, there's so much to talk about. I've got a lot of different things that come to mind. You know, we really have a few ways. The first, first thing to think about is the actual initial construction of the portfolio. And then the next thing to think about is kind of what do you do as the portfolio is going the wrong way? And I think that many, every listeners, either if they haven't faced this, they will face this. The first part about the construction of the portfolio, I think that, you know, when, when we talk about diversification, sometimes we're talking about, well, I own some stocks and I own some bonds and all that. But the reality is you got to ask the question, like, what am I diversified, you know, from and what am I missing? And so that's where I think the diversification, let's just say, well, I own stocks and I own bonds, therefore I'm diversified. Well, wait a minute. Are you diversified from interest rate movement? Are you diversified from commodity movement? Are you diversified from currency movement? So that we stop looking at just the traditional you know, asset class into factor exposure, let's say. And I think that's kind of one of the lessons that, that I take away from it. I think the other one is currency, such a major factor. And, and I want to just tell a quick story myself as a head of research for many years as an analyst, but also teaching finance in my valuation masterclass where I've taught, you know, more than 800 students now through that course. Occasionally the question comes up, Andrew, I'm valuing this particular company and I'm just curious, should I be using the local risk-free rate or should I be using the US dollar risk-free rate for this Hong Kong company? And what I try to explain, because what I try to explain to them is just my own opinion and that is when you're analyzing an asset, you should analyze that asset in the home markets terms. In other words, how would a Hong Kong person value that company in Hong Kong? How would a, a U.S. person evaluate, evaluate that company, if it's a U.S. company, in their home market? The reason why I say this is because if you start to use U.S. dollar as your discount rate, all of a sudden you're bringing in currency. Ultimately, you're going to be bringing in the impact of U.S. dollar and U.S. dollar rates. And what I always say is that the fund manager, as an analyst servicing institutional fund managers back in the U.S., let's say, I would say the job of an analyst in a local market is to identify what this company's worth. The job of, an an, of a fund manager is to decide, okay, do I like that stock? I think it's going to go up by 20%. Like Andrew says, yes. Now, now I've got to make a decision about the currency. Yeah. If I think that the currency of that market is going to fall by 20%, then no, it doesn't matter how much locally it looks cheap. I'm not going to buy it internationally because of the foreign exchange exposure. And I think that sure. we, we just kind of blindly go out and say, yeah, foreign assets and buy, you know, diversify foreign into foreign. But really, if the dollar was on a huge run, as an example, you know, it can hurt extremely bad. Or let's turn it around. There are some people out there that have a theory that the U.S. dollar is going to collapse over the next few years. So if I'm here sitting in Thailand telling someone, own U.S. assets, all of a sudden you got the US market potentially collapsing and then the US dollar collapsing along with it. We're talking about a very destructive decision. So those are some of the things that I'm thinking about. The first thing is understanding your risk relative to factors rather than asset classes. And then the second one is the idea of trying to separate your decision on currency from your decision on 
asset purses. You have any thoughts on those? Yeah, it's really a question of compensation because in the sense of the local company that you're talking about, you're going to be compensated based upon the risk that that company could go out of business and you will expect a you know a commensurate amount of return. I mean, that's the equity risk premium. You should expect a commensurate amount of return from taking the risk that that company could have struggles with regard to earnings and ultimately go out of business. I've not seen a similar expected return coming from the risk of being exposed to currency movements. There's no carry, there's no income, there's no long-term capital appreciation from currencies. It just doesn't exist. So from that standpoint, I think that's the point that I really want to hone in on is that we should more than happily accept risk for a commensurate amount of expected return, but we should avoid risks that don't have a return that justifies taking that risk. Uh So- and that's that's a big one big one, thing. One question. I, I'm I'm writing down notes as you're speaking, and I was kind of okay. thinking, okay, f- I was asking my question. Currency is not an asset. Mm, well, I don't know. Well, another way of saying it is, currency doesn't provide a return commensurate with risk, or the risk-return relationship of a currency is different from all other assets. Yeah, this is why people talk about gold that way. Like like gold is a is just a transitional currency in a sense, you know, because you don't, you can't, gold generates no income. You know, there's, there's no way to discount the dividend you get from gold to determine its valuation relative to where it's priced in the market. So, you know, currency is a similar situation. I mean, how do you, how do you make a determination as to whether it's a, an asset class or not when it doesn't really exist? In many cases, a fiat currency doesn't really exist other than for the faith and credit of the country that's issuing it. You know, I would submit that there's really only three asset classes if you really want to get strict on it. It's equities and fixed income and then real assets, be it real estate or hard commodities or, or other things that you can touch and feel. Mm, okay. And currency okay. doesn't fall into any of those. So I just want to wrap up the takeaway section and then we'll, we'll move into the actionable advice. But I'm just curious, are there any tools or systemat- systems that you use now? So you've mentioned momentum. I like that because you're saying, look, it doesn't really matter what all of my models say about, you know, this is cheap or this is good idea and all that. It partially matters how is it moving. So I like that. Is there anything else that you're that you're using or discipline that you're using to keep yourself from making that mistake? Absolutely. So yeah, momentum is a big one. What I did was I looked at the prior 12 months return of all the asset categories that I was interested in and subtracted out the long-term average and divided by the standard deviation that gave me a Z-score that I could compare apples to apples across every different asset category, irrespective of, of its volatility. Because you can't just say, okay, well, this one's doing really well relative to the other one that doesn't have the same kind of size of movements. So normalizing them through a Z-score was a really interesting suggestion that I got from a friend of mine named Mark Carhart, who's really the father of momentum as it pertains to securities. But I asked him about you know, momentum with regard to asset allocation at the portfolio level, and that was the suggestion he gave me. But then you also think about the way smart beta funds are are constructed, they allocate to different kinds of factors. And I think you really hit on it exactly that diversification by source of risk, diversification by factor is a far superior way of thinking about it than 
diversification by asset category, just what somebody happened to classify something. High yield has a lot of similar risk to equity, but it's mm-hmm. in a you know, completely different asset category, but the risks are the same, particularly during times of stress. So looking at all those different kinds of things, you know, carry can be one as well. You know, am I generating income from something and is, you know, can I get a return from that? And that's worth something as well. And that's different from the other two. So thinking okay. about those kinds of things is, is really important, I think. And let me just review the Z-score um, that you talked about. It's 12 months return, did you say? It is. for So a lot of the people who do momentum on the individual security level do 12 minus 1, so they don't count the most recent month. I found that it wasn't really necessary at the portfolio level when you're looking at asset categories to do that. So I just looked at the last 12 months and then subtracted out the long-term average and divided by the standard deviation. And then okay. that gives you an, an apples-to-apples comparison. Got it. And when you said Carhartt, you mean the Carhartt? Yeah, Mark Carhartt from Fama French Carhartt four-factor model. That's the one. Exactly. Um, so he, he's the one that brought momentum was, into it. Yeah, he was kind enough to to write a, a a nice endorsement of the book that came out in November, and uh, he's been a friend for a long time. I, I just think the world of him, one of the smartest people I've ever met. That's fantastic. Okay, great. So let's now imagine a young man or woman out there in the investment field, and they've come up with their great idea about how to allocate their assets. They've set their plan. It seems to make sense. They're ready to defend it. Based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend the listeners, that listener take to avoid suffering the same fate? Yeah, it's the hardest thing that, at least for me, that I've had to learn is what can go wrong. Be completely honest and objective and ask yourself what can go wrong. Because especially earlier in, early in your career, or at least for me, and I don't know how it was with you, Andrew, and I, I suspect it is this way for a lot of people, you get excited about an idea, you want to promote it, and particularly you don't necessarily have the authority to put it into a portfolio and take the risk yourself, so you, you're only looking at the positive outcome. The challenge mm-hmm. is if you are strong enough emotionally to be able to say, okay, what could go wrong here? And then had I done that with the 2014 example, I probably would have paid more attention to the currency risk. I probably would have paid more attention to the overweight allocation to emerging markets and thought, okay, something could go wrong here. I can see the positive outcome potential here, but what can go wrong? And it's tough because you want everything to go right and you don't even want to think about what could go wrong, but you have to, you really have to force yourself to do it. And if you, if you can, then it can help you sidestep some of the, the pitfalls that many of us have, have stepped into over the years. Yeah, and also you have to ask yourself, what could go wrong with asking myself, what could go wrong? Yeah. And it's, it's a little bit yeah. like when you ask someone, what's your number one weakness? Well, I just try too hard sometimes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so what we're really saying is you've got to become, take the intellectual challenge to be able to truly investigate what could go wrong. And I think if you can do that, you really not only are you saving yourself potentially from this type of mistake, but you're also strengthening your ability to analyze situations objectively. And that is a valuable skill. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Yeah, so uh, the book that came out in November of last year is called Success in a Low Return World. I firmly believe that the next 10 years in 
stock markets all over the world, particularly, I mean, in the developed world, at least emerging markets may be a different story, but at least in developed countries, I think the returns will be a fraction of what they've been over the course of the last decade. And I'm not alone in that, in that thought, but the reality is, is that what's a good plan for navigating those waters over the course of the next decade. So in the next year, the next 10 years, what I'm going to do is spend a lot of time talking to individual investors and institutional investors about unlocking additional value from the equities that they hold. Recognize you're only going to get 5 to 7% maybe from developed market returns. Maybe that's not good enough. What else can we do? Options offer the opportunity to enhance the value of a, of a portfolio of stocks by selling calls to generate income. You can also buy puts to hedge against the downside during periods of stress that are probably going to be more prevalent in the next decade than they have been in the last decade. So I'm going to continue to tell the story of, hey, we're in a low return world going forward. We can chuckle about it now because for the last 10 years, it has certainly not been a low return world. In the future, it likely will be. So what do we do? I think we need to be objective about that and plan for it accordingly. Got it. So spreading that message and for listeners out there who want to learn more on that, I'm going to have the links to your books and, uh, and your, any, any other ways that they can get a hold of you on the show notes. So fantastic. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. And while you're there, send me a message. Maybe we can get your story on the show. As we end, Michael, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And I just wanted to mention that there's a lot of people I talk to who are professional money managers. It's like, oh, I don't want to talk about my mistake because it, it's going to make me look bad to my clients. Yeah, it's hard. But I take my hat off to you, Michael, for sharing a professional mistake and a professional journey and it's real. And the point is, this is what makes you a more valuable advisor to clients because you have been through it and you have analyzed it and grown from it. So do you have any parting words for our audience? Yeah, I appreciate that very much. And it's, it is hard to look in the mirror and say, okay, I, I'm, I could have done better here. But I think the strongest among us who can survive what is just a brutal in investment field and, and remain a professional in this in this world for any length of time have to look at their mistakes and grow from them and I, I appreciate the characterization of that because it is hard and if, if you know if you think about behavioral finance and all of our natural cognitive biases that make us bad investors recognizing those and, and growing from those and the knowledge that we have definitely galvanizes us to be better investors in the future. So I, I, I'm happy that I had the opportunity to come on and hopefully you've got a listener or two that listens to this and says, Oh boy, yeah, I, I can really take something from that. That, that would be really a, a good thing. Yeah. Well, thank you. You've got definitely set a good example for the rest of us. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.